The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Autism One, a conversation of hope, brought to you by Enzymedica with host Terry Aranga. All comments, views, and opinions expressed are solely those of the host, guest, and callers. In the next hour, Terry and her guest illuminate how right now there is more reason than ever for individuals with autism spectrum disorders and their families to have the best hope for the brightest future. Through education and conversation, there is hope. Here's your host, Terry Aranga. Welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and a special edition of this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, on Tuesday, January 11th. This program's topic, What in the World is Happening with Andy Wakefield? This show will explore not only the British Medical Journal's editorial titled Wakefield's article linking MMR vaccine and autism was fraudulent, but take a look at the bigger picture. I'm your host, Terry Aranga, joined by Dr. Andrew Wakefield and World Autism Community Leaders, Dr. Vicki DeBold of the National Vaccine Information Center, Wendy Fournier of the National Autism Association, and J.B. Handley of Generation Rescue. Mark Blacksell of Safe Minds and Age of Autism had a flight change and is with us in spirit for this broadcast. Hello to my guests. Thank you for being on with us today. Hi, Terry. Thank you. Hi, Terry. Good morning. For our listeners, here's some background. This is from the British Medical Journal. The editorial, first in an ominous series and published January 5th, is titled Wakefield's Article Linking MMR Vaccine and Autism was Fraudulent by Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief, Jane Smith, Deputy Editor, and Harvey Markovich, Associate Editor. It says, Drawing on interviews, documents, and data made public at the GMC hearings, Deere, that is Brian Deere, shows how Wakefield altered numerous facts about the patient's medical histories in order to support his claim to have identified a new syndrome, how his institution, the Royal Free Hospital and Medical School in London, supported him as he sought to exploit the ensuing MMR scare for financial gain, and how key players failed to investigate thoroughly in the public interest when Deere first raised his concerns. Deere published his first investigation into Wakefield's paper in 2004. This uncovered the possibility of research fraud, unethical treatment of children, and Wakefield's conflict of interest through his involvement with a lawsuit against manufacturers of the MMR vaccine. Building on these findings, the GMC launched its own proceedings that focused on whether the research was ethical. But while the disciplinary panel was examining the children's medical records in public, Deere compared them with what was published in The Lancet. His focus was now on whether the research was true. The Office of Research Integrity in the United States defines fraud as fabrication, falsification, or plagiarism. Deere unearthed clear evidence of falsification. He found that not one of the 12 cases reported in the 1998 Lancet paper was free of misrepresentation or undisclosed alteration, and that in no single case could the medical records be fully reconciled with the descriptions, diagnoses, or histories published in the journal. What of Wakefield's other publications? 
in light of this new information, their veracity must be questioned. Past experience tells us that research misconduct is rarely isolated behavior. Over the years, the BMJ and its sister journals, Gut and Archives of Disease in Childhood, have published a number of articles, including letters and abstracts by Wakefield and colleagues. We have written to the vice provost of UCL, John Took, who now has responsibility for Wakefield's former institution, to ask for an investigation into all of his work to decide whether any more papers should be retracted. And I did skip some paragraphs in between the first three I read and the last that I read. Dr. Wakefield, I'm going to begin with you briefly asking an obvious question, and then we are going to move to Dr. Vicki DeBole for some historical bigger picture perspectives before coming back to the editorial itself. So, Dr. Wakefield, that paper, Ileal Lymphoid Nodular Hyperplasia, Nonspecific Colitis, and Pervasive Developmental Disorder in Children, 12-plus years ago, one scientific report, rehashed allegations, why here, why now? It's a very good question, and I think what we're listening to here is the, uh, the, the death throes of a, uh, of a, of a, a wounded creature. And um, what the uh, authorities, and dear in particular, are furious with me about is that I simply won't go away, and this issue won't go away. As you say, these allegations were made years ago. The uh, recent allegations were not recent at all. They were made at least a year ago, and they have been addressed comprehensively in uh, my book, Callous Disregard. The findings are completely false in terms of Brian Deere's investigation. Uh, they're based upon fraudulent allegations. And just so that your readers know, the Lancet paper, in my opinion, and in the opinion of many of my colleagues, completely stands. It is a fair and honest representation of the story as told to us by the parents, the clinical findings on investigation, and faithfully reproduced in that journal. And there is absolutely nothing about them whatsoever that is fraudulent. There is a fraud, there is a hoax that's been perpetrated on the people of the United States of America and the UK, and that is from Brian Deere himself. And it's extraordinary to me that he has managed to take in the British medical journal, the once respectable medical journal, um, and cause them to publish this. And my question to them is, have you looked at the other side? Have you read my book, Callous Disregard, where I have comprehensively dealt with Deer's allegations, refuting every single one? Have you looked at that and read it before uh, putting this nonsense out there? And the answer, I'm absolutely certain, is no. The Lancet paper, the 1998 paper, what did it say or show, probably most importantly to this discussion, what did it not show? Well, I think what it did is to take the clinical history uh, and the findings in 12 children whose parents came to us for clinical care, not for the purposes of litigation, but because the children were sick. They were symptomatic. In particular, they had autistic regression and gastrointestinal symptoms that had not been investigated properly. When they were investigated properly, they were found to have a novel inflammatory bowel disease, a subtle but nonetheless definite inflammatory bowel disease that responded to treatment. That was reported in the case series. This was not a hypothesis testing study. It merely was a description of the clinical condition. It wasn't even in that respect a scientific study. It was just a clinical case report. The other thing it did was to faithfully reproduce the story given to us by the parents about what they believed precipitated their child's problem. 
Now, had the child's problem been precipitated by um, natural chickenpox, for example, had the child regressed into autism within a short space of time after chickenpox, then we wouldn't be having this conversation, Terry. But because it was a vaccine, it was absolutely unacceptable. Now, we were asked at the time whether it was wise to put in the vaccine story. If we hadn't have done, that would have been dishonest. That would have been a misrepresentation because we would be censoring the parent's story for some political expedient, and we weren't about to do that. So that was what was said. What was not said was that MMR vaccine causes autism. In fact, what we said was that this study does not prove an association, let alone a causal association between the vaccine and the disorder, but it did call for further research. And it was that that ignited the spark. Thank you, Dr. Wakefield. Now let's look to Dr. Vicki DeBold. Dr. DeBold has been employed in the healthcare field for more than 30 years as an ICU nurse, healthcare administrator, and health policy analyst primarily focusing on pediatrics and patient safety. Currently, she is a research scientist and affiliate faculty member at George Mason University in the Health Administration and Policy Department, where she teaches health services research methods. Since 2008, Dr. Bolt has served as the consumer voting member of the Food and Drug Administration's Vaccine and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee. Additionally, she has worked for the Vaccine Safety Working Group, Epidemiology and Implementation Subcommittees of the National Vaccine Advisory Committee. She also serves as a consumer representative to the independent H1N1 Vaccine Safety Risk Assessment Working Group and has been a consultant to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Board of Scientific Counselors. Dr. DeBold, let's address the bigger picture, the historical perspective. An inordinate amount of focus has been placed on vilifying one report and one researcher, but is neurodevelopmental injury is associated with vaccine components isolated? No, Terry, not at all. Um, adverse reactions that involve the neurological and immune system problems following vaccination are not at all new, nor are they confined to one just one vaccine. Um, very early vaccine experiments involving a range of vaccines, uh, especially those involving pertussis, have documented encephalopathic conditions, which sometimes they resolve without any apparent lasting harm, but sometimes they result in death and many different kinds of conditions in between. Um, regression and loss of acquired skills, uh, such as Physical regression, social, emotional, and psychological have all been documented uh, after vaccination for decades, and that precedes by a long time any sort of uh, concerns about a temporal association between MMR and regression. Um, you can look to previous work uh, from the IOM and find evidence of this. In 1999, they published a report on pertussis and rubella and concluded that there was a causal relationship between DTP and encephalopathy, shock and shock-like states. Um, furthermore, if you look on the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program's table of compensable in injuries, encephalopathy is a compensable injury for both pertussis-containing vaccines and MMR. Um, and just so you know, um, as far as the myriad of other types of neurologic conditions, uh, problems following vaccination, um, there are conditions that are among the 60% of questions that the IOM has tried to review 
uh, over the past decade and a half, and there just was inadequate science to actually um, determine whether or not there was a relationship between vaccination and certain types of neurologic problems. Um, so there's, you know, a very large gap uh, in science about what we know and what we don't know uh, as it relates to adverse events following vaccination. Even at even as admitted, it sounds, uh, by the IOM, the Institutes of Medicine itself. Well, Vicki, yesterday someone mentioned a very interesting term to me, the retaliatory template. Does the history of medicine give us other stories about the establishment discrediting those with unorthodox and unpopular views of current-day medicine? Well, I've never heard the term retaliatory template. That's interesting. I'd like to know more about it. But um, the history of medicine is, is full of, of stories of physicians and other people who've gone up against the establishment, and, and it has tried to discredit the views of, of those that they consider to be unorthodox or unpopular. You know, probably the best-known example of this is uh, Ignaz Simmelweis's work on childbed fever and hand-washing. Um, he was subjected to ridicule and rejection by his contemporaries. Um, since then, there have been many, many, many uh, examples of conditions and situations that we learn later on uh, were inappropriate. I mean, the use of DES during pregnancy, thalidomide during pregnancy, radiation of tonsils and subsequent thyroid cancer, uh, use of high-dose oxygen and retinal blindness, there's just and and so then the physicians that first raise these concerns, you know, are are generally um, treated disrespectfully. So um, the fact that this is going on now under these circumstances is just sort of part and parcel of a long history of what happens to people who challenge the uh, established views. We're going to continue with Dr. Vicki DeBold after the break. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. In the spirit of Have Couch Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. 
Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll-free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back addressing the British Medical Journal's editorial that is um, making allegations against Dr. Andrew Wakefield, and we're picking up with Dr. Vicki DeBold right now. Dr. DeBold, what happens when global medical dominance is challenged, and how is medical dominance maintained? Well, this is a favorite topic of medical sociologists, and it's, it's fairly complicated, but um, as it relates to vaccination, there's at least two big uh, things that happen when the dominant paradigm is, is challenged. And um, one of the reasons that it's starting to fall apart uh, on this topic is because that the lay public now has access to scientific information that it never had in the past. And um, as a whole, the public is is in more engaged in medical consumerism, and they're rejecting increased medicalization of all sorts of, of, of health problems. And at the same time, they're being told that they have to take responsibility for their own health outcomes. So when you've got, you know, a public that is fairly well-educated, they're working hard to uh, improve their own health outcomes, they begin to ask questions about being asked to take an increasing number of vaccines. Uh, so they're starting to ask questions about, you know, how safe is it to take all of these vaccines all at once. And, um, you know, vaccines, unlike radical, me- regular medical products, they get special scrutiny because they're given to um, healthy people and they're also tied to the ability to engage in regular public education or work in certain types of, of fields. So, I mean, you've got now a situation where the public is aware that um, there are a number of medical products that are that do cause iatrogenic harm, depending on you know what um, what you're looking at between uh, iatrogenic harm, harm caused by the healer, is uh, between the third and the eighth leading cause of death. Um, we have to begin to you know, pay attention to the fact that this is an, uh, an active public that is, is very much interested in what we know and what we don't know about vaccination. Well, what is the influence of the pharmaceutical industry on published and funded science, medical education, and prescribing behaviors? Well, that's also been a very hot topic that's been written about by certain editors of the journal. Um, we know that the pharmaceutical industry does fund um, a lot of research. They have a tendency to only publish results, uh, results that are positive, and even when the results are negative, there have been some analyses done to show that they spin the results so they make negative results actually look like positive results. Um, that sort of material was written about some of the um, studies done on statins. Um, we also know that they pay for a lot of advertising. 
um, that purchasing reprints from journals is an important source of revenue for journals. So you've got, uh, you know, financial conflicts of interest um, and undue influence on the production of science as well as the publication of science. And before before you know it, we've got, you know, an enormous amount of bias in our scientific literature. Tell us about the future of vaccines and the vaccine industry, and also are there problems with vaccine science and infrastructure? Um, the vaccine industry is actually very healthy. Um, most of the uh, internal analyses that I've seen are stating that um, they're expecting huge growth. They, uh, in 2009, vaccine revenues were uh, stated to be about $22 billion. They're expecting about, uh, and that was a 16% increase over what they had in 2008. They're looking at about $35 billion for 2015. So that is, um, you know, what, what, you know, in this economy, most people would consider to be a very healthy uh, industry. Um, they also are talking about uh, 200 or more vaccines that are in the pipeline uh, for both adults and children. Um, you ask about problems related to vaccine science and infrastructure. There are lots of issues um, there, and I, I'll just say that the, the concerns that have been raised that we are um, evaluating in some of the group work I'm doing um, deal with problems uh, prior to licensure and also problems following licensure. And some of the issues that come up prior to licensure end up being um, constituting the gaps that we have in understanding safety. Um, the pre-licensure clinical trials are generally very small. They generally only enroll healthy children. And um, increasingly, uh, they are using what's called an active placebo, which means that um, the experimental group is not compared to a control group that gets an inert substance, such as a saline placebo. They're compared to children who get other vaccines or they get the adjuvant. And while this does not impair the ability to determine whether or not someone produces antibodies, it does impair our ability to determine whether there are safety signals. So all that translates into gaps in knowledge, and at the time, right after licensure, these vaccines are then recommended by CDC for general use and, 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 and use in vulnerable subgroups for which we have no evidence of safety. And post-licensure, we've got two systems. We've got a passive surveillance system, which is called VAERS, and we have an active surveillance system that's called VSD. And both of those systems have issues. And the VSD, which is supposed to be the best of the systems, is still too small to pick up, you know, rather uncommon events. They still don't have unvaccinated control groups. And probably the, the largest issue is that this is a closed, database. So um, outside investigators have no ability to go in and confirm or replicate any of the findings that are done by investigators who are on contract to the CDC. So the checks and balances in the scientific infrastructure here in the United States, you know, leave some fairly large gaps, which I think is what you know, the public is becoming increasingly aware that the safety net and the, the data that we have, um, you know, there are, there are gaps and holes here 
Um, and I think this is translating into some of the polls and the statistics that we're seeing um, with consumer confidence, where we now have about 90% of uh, surveyed parents saying that vaccine safety and medication safety is their number one um, concern. Okay, so it doesn't even sound like vaccine pre-licensure testing is fair or logical and that there's a lack of transparency. One more question for you, Dr. DeBolt. There was a vaccine summit last week. Are you at liberty to share any information from that? Um, well, yes, it was, it was a summit um, that was composed of senior scientists and physicians and some editors of scientific journals. Um, we had some uh, experts in vaccine regulation, health policy people that all came together to um, discuss sort of the need for uh, improved and methodologically sound research into vaccine safety issues. So there were a number of topics discussed, uh, specific types of research topics, and um, you know, there, there, there is an agreement that there needs to be, um, you know, collaboration internationally to begin working on some of these issues and look for sources of funding that will actually permit um, independent scientists to go forward and answer some of the questions that are still out on the table. Very good. Thank you, Dr. DeBold. We're going to come back and talk with Dr. Wakefield about the BMJ allegations. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. To perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On Mind, Brain, and Body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health and Wellness. Radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Most chronic health problems are caused by the interaction between genetic susceptibility and environmental exposure. This was defined 10 years ago by the Centers for Disease Control. 
Join Dr. Robin Bernhoft for 21st Century Medicine. We will cover the whole spectrum of chronic illness and little-known medical treatments that are being used to make you healthier. 21st Century Medicine airs live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back talking with Dr. Andrew Wakefield. Dr. Wakefield, let's look at the allegations in this. The first BMJ editorial. I'll read this. Allegation one, Deere, that is Brian Deere, shows how Wakefield altered numerous facts about the patient's medical histories in order to support his claim to have identified a new syndrome. The BMJ editorial says, Deere unearthed clear evidence of falsification. He found that not one of the 12 cases reported in the 1998 Lancet paper was free of misrepresentation or undisclosed alteration, and that in no single case could the medical records be fully reconciled with the descriptions, diagnoses, or histories published in the journal. Dr. Wakefield? Sorry, thank you very much. Let me give you two examples of where this is completely wrong uh, and how Deere knew it to be completely wrong long in advance of writing this article. Um, let's take, just take the pathology findings, where the claim is that these children did not have the pathology, that is the inflammation in the intestine, that was described in their clinical records. Let me take you through the process. The biopsies are reviewed um, routinely in the pathology laboratory, and that can be done by a gynecological pathologist or a, uh, a, a neuropathologist. Uh, they were then reviewed in Dr. Wakefield, we have a buzzing. Um, okay. Get rid of that. Um, okay, can you back up a little bit? Sure. So that was the first thing is biopsies are reviewed uh, routinely in the pathology laboratory by the attending physician. The second thing is that because Professor Walker-Smith has an unparalleled expertise in uh, the pathology of, disease, of the gut in children, um, he holds a routine meeting every Friday where the pathologist and his team review the biopsies. What became clear at that meeting with John Walker-Smith is that there was discordance. He disagreed. He found that there was disease when, in fact, the pathologists had missed it. In order to resolve this, what we did is to get the senior gastrointestinal pathologist in the hospital, that is Dr. Dillon, to review all the biopsies from these children in a blinded fashion. That is, he had no knowledge of the source of the biopsies. When he did that in a systematic way, he came to a final diagnosis, and it was that diagnosis that was included in the paper, faithfully included in the paper. Now, Dr. Dillon wrote a report to the GMC describing exactly that process, and that report was described in detail in my book, Callous Disregard. This was available to Brian Deere, long in advance of this recent article, and indeed is in the Press Complaints Commission report sent to the UK's Press Complaints Commission um, about Brian Deere, um, indicting his, his reporting. So he had access to that also long in advance of this article coming out in the BMJ. So he knew 
what the process was. He knew that I did not make the diagnosis. He knew that the diagnosis was made by a senior pathologist using the most rigorous scientific standards. And yet he did not add that to the information he provided to the BMJ, we are told, and therefore they were misled. So that deals with the allegation of changing the pathology. And let me give you another example. We were accused of, uh, of, or at least it was alleged, that there was discordance between the clinical records, the general practitioner records of the children as they were growing up, and the findings that we made at the Royal Free, the history taken by Professor Walker-Smith. Let me give you one example of that. In child one, that is the first child who came to be scoped at the Royal Free, he said that there was clear evidence of autism before the child received the MMR. And what he cited is that the child had difficulty hearing. And this was based upon a record of hearing problems in the general practitioner record, which was not available to us at the time. So first of all, we couldn't have faked it. We couldn't have been fraudulent because we did not have access to the full general practitioner records. Nonetheless, what he failed to mention is that at the same time, the mother complained of a discharge from the child's ear. In other words, we have hearing difficulties in association with signs of an infection in the ear. He has taken, in an, in an expert, incompetent, and perhaps um, very dubious way, one piece of information selectively and put it forward as evidence of incipient autism, when in fact it is likely, very likely, based on the true history, that it was due to an infection, an ear infection. And that is just a measure of the distortion and the misrepresentation that characterizes Brian Day's reporting. Well said. Allegation two. How his, that is your, institution, the Royal Free Hospital and Medical School in London, supported him as he sought to exploit the ensuing MMR scare for financial gain. And I understand you have something, some breaking information also to share on this. Yes, I got involved in the MMR litigation in 1996 after I had been approached some months before in uh, March, May the 17th of 1995 by Rosemary Keswick. Now, uh, Brian Deere knew this as well, and what he originally said is that these children were recruited for the purpose of litigation. Nothing could be further from the truth. When Rosemary Keswick first called me in May of 1995, I knew absolutely nothing of the litigation whatsoever. Indeed, I knew very little about autism. Um, so she called me because she was concerned about her very sick child, and she was aware of a number of other parents in exactly the same position. None of the children, when they were referred to the Royal Free Hospital, were involved in any litigation whatsoever. These children were coming to see Professor Walker-Smith because they were sick and their condition had been largely ignored. I joined in the litigation because I was particularly concerned that these children were not getting access to the process of justice. In other words, when their parents uh, die or become infirm, they will die on the streets. There is nothing for these children. Society does not care. There is no provision. And I felt that I had to do something to rectify that if I could. I had a moral and a professional obligation to do so. And I wrote to my colleagues explaining in great detail at least a year before the um, MMR, sorry, before the paper was published in The Lancet, that this was the case and explaining my reasons for being involved. So the children were not exploited. They were seen because they were sick. They had clinical referrals. They came to us. We responded to a crisis. We responded to their concerns. We did not create it. And the idea that this was done to pursue litigation is utter nonsense and has been completely disproven 
by the facts. And there's something else that's about to come up. Yes, the, the last thing, I mean, I think this is an allegation that is about to emerge, but it's not new. It was made many years ago and published in the Sunday Times, is that I had a vaccine patent, a competing vaccine patent, a rival to MMR vaccine, and so that this was some um, dastardly scheme to bring about the downfall of MMR vaccine so that I could launch my own vaccine onto the market and become phenomenally rich. Well, what an extraordinary idea that might be. The patent that was filed was for a treatment. It isn't a drug. In fact, it's an over-the-counter nutritional supplement. And for those of you involved in the autism community, you will have heard of it. It's called transfer factor. And transfer factor is a naturally occurring substance. It occurs in uh, milk, for example. And what it does is to boost the immune system. And there was some evidence that suggested that it might be possible in children who have become infected with the vaccine strain virus. In other words, they couldn't clear it from their body because they were, their immune system wasn't working. But this nutritional supplement would boost their immune system and help them get rid of it. This was put out there by Brian Deere as being a rival to MMR. It could not be. It could never have been. Why? Because it does not work in the same way as a population-based vaccine like MMR. It does not produce antibodies. Antibodies are essential to the function of vaccines. So this transfer factor, this nutritional supplement, which was intended as a treatment, could never, ever have been a rival for MMR vaccine. And that is a complete mischaracterization. I should say that this was also explained to Brian Deere and those attending the General Medical Council inquiry in great detail. He was aware of it, and yet he chose to ignore it. And I just qualify this by saying there is one situation in which you might protect children who, um, where it might act as not as a, vac- a vaccine as we understand it, but to protect children whose immune systems are not working. Now, these children who have uh, rare immunodeficiencies cannot have live viral vaccines like MMR. It may well kill them because their immune system cannot respond to it appropriately. So the vaccines are contraindicated in such children. And there is some evidence that by giving transfer factor in, for example, an epidemic of an infection, you don't protect the children from getting infected, but you might help them deal with the infection. In those circumstances, it would be a therapeutic vaccine. And there is evidence in the literature that this might be the case, for example, with chickenpox in children with leukemia. So in a very rare subset of children who cannot have the live viral vaccine like MMR, it may actually protect them, not from the infection, but from the consequences of the infection. Now, Brian Deere was aware of this. He was told about it. Either he did not understand it and therefore should never have been in a position to write about it, or he has deliberately misrepresented the facts. Allegation three in the BMG editorial and how key players failed to investigate thoroughly in the public interest when Deere first raised his concerns. What's that about? So I'm not quite sure what he is referring to specifically, and I imagine this goes back to his um, original articles in the... Uh, Sunday Times. Again, it, it, this is such a vague allegation that people didn't investigate it properly. There was a thorough investigation, and all of us sat down, and the data were produced. The uh, editor of The Lancet came to the Royal Free. They went through the clinical records, and they were quite happy 
on an independent review of the clinical records that these children had been seen appropriately for their clinical condition and there was no misrepresentation. So, again, I'm not quite sure of the provenance of, of Deer's allegation in that respect. He has a, a strange way, a, a sort of um, malevolent transposition, a way of changing the facts to suit his story. And this is the characterizes Brian Deer's personality. He's become fixed on a story, and he is unshakable in his belief that that story is correct. And I'm afraid um, the British medical system, the scientific system, the British Medical Journal, most certainly have been hijacked by this man's agenda. And it's really very, very worrying. The message that it's meant to the world is that do not get involved in this. Stay out of vaccine safety research because this is what will happen to you. And I'm afraid that's what this actually is. It's a public relations exercise, an extravagant, expensive public relations exercise, which is intended to discourage dissent. And it will fail. It will fail comprehensively. Again, well said, and thank you, Dr. Wakefield. We will be right back and speak with J.B. Handley after we come back from break. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. More and more parents of children affected by autism are discovering enzyme therapy as an important part of their treatment program. Digestive enzymes help to break down the foods which may enhance nutrient absorption. Used therapeutically, enzymes can also support the immune system to break down pathogens such as viruses, fungal forms, and bacteria. Enzyme Medica formulates the highest quality of enzyme supplements to address a wide variety of issues. Lacto, a broad-spectrum digestive enzyme focusing on the complete digestion of milk proteins. Gluten Ease, high in DPP-4 activity, known for its ability to help break down gluten. And Virus Stop, an enzyme formulated to assist in the body eliminating pathogens. Enzyme Medica provides the purest enzyme products, free of fillers, anything artificial, and of all common allergens. We are dedicated to education and helping you find the best products for your children. Learn more today at www.enzymemedica.com. Are you finding fitness a chore? Is health and nutrition too time-consuming for you? It doesn't have to be like that at all. Tune in to Fit Fan for Fun, Lifestyle Fitness with your host, Shira Litwack. Every week, Shira and her guests will show you the fun side of fitness. We'll invite you to send topic suggestions and questions via email, as well as call into the program. You'll get sensible fitness and nutrition advice in a relaxed and fun program. You won't look at fitness as an enemy ever again. Fit Fan for Fun airs every Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. The Autism Hope Alliance is dedicated to the recovery of children and adults from autism. The goal of this nonprofit organization is to ignite hope for families facing the diagnosis through education and funding to promote progress today. Diet modification, biomedical intervention, and educational therapy have been shown to be successful tools on the path to recovery. Through these efforts, we believe hope will replace hopelessness. Recovery for our children is a reality. For more information, go to AutismHopeAlliance.org. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry. We're back discussing the British Medical Journal's editorial that carries allegations against Dr. Andrew Wakefield. And now let's talk with J.B. Handley, co-founder of Generation Rescue. J.B., today in the Wall Street Journal, Paul Offit has a piece titled, Junk Science Isn't a Victimless Crime. Vaccines don't cause autism, and there was never any proof that they do. Too bad kids had to die while we figured that out. It says, in 1998, a British surgeon named Andrew Wakefield published a paper claiming that the measles, mumps, rubella, MMR vaccine might cause autism. To support his case, Dr. Wakefield reported the stories of eight children who had developed symptoms of autism within one month of receiving MMR. He proposed that measles vaccine virus travels to the intestine, causes intestinal damage, and allows for brain-damaging proteins to enter children's bloodstreams. The problem with Dr. Wakefield's study published in The Lancet, a leading medical journal, was that it didn't study the question. To prove his hypothesis, he should have examined the incidence of autism in hundreds of thousands of children who had or hadn't received MMR. This kind of study has now been performed 14 times on several continents by many investigators. The studies have shown that MMR doesn't cause autism. It continues to say... Dr. Wakefield's paper created a firestorm. Thousands of parents in the United Kingdom and Ireland chose not to vaccinate their children. Hundreds of children were hospitalized and four killed by measles. JB, can you please tell our listeners about the alleged 14 studies that Paul Offit mentions, as well as about Dr. Paul Thorson and his being investigated by the Copenhagen police for fraud? Well, first off, Paul Offit is a multimillionaire vaccine patent holder who was also a fox in the hen house, meaning that he sat on um, the ACIP, which is the committee that decides which vaccines get put on the U.S. vaccine schedule. They might as well ask Joe Camel to write the next piece about whether or not cigarettes are healthy. It's absurd um, that this guy is some sort of um, talker for the other side of this debate, given how conflicted he is. Uh, what, what's most frustrating for me, and this is why I distrust people like Paul Offit so completely, is how willing people, you know, wearing white coats, having an MD after their name, are willing to lie to the American people about the actual science that's been done. I, I got so frustrated with it, I, I literally created an entire website called 14studies.org that um, disassembles each of these quote-unquote studies that Offit is talking about. I, I think the simplest way to explain it is that there is not a single study that the other side cites that includes any unvaccinated children. Um, I've made this reference before, but it would be like comparing people who smoke a pack of cigarettes a day to those who smoke two packs a day, um, showing that they have the same rate of cancer and therefore cigarettes don't cause cancer. They use this statistical trick over and over again, and they rely on the ignorance of the media um, and the average American to take their word for it that they won't look at the details. That's why the 14 Studies website exists. Um, and every one of the studies that a guy like Offit cites uh, routinely is in there, and it shows how contrived um, what's actually been done really is. You know, the, the great example is there was a 2003 study in pediatrics that was the only study ever done of American children. First of all, uh, the study didn't look at anything to do with MMR, even though um, somehow Offit now cites that as one of his 14. Um, it looked at the notion of whether or not mercury causes autism through vaccines. 
in the CDC study, which is the most famous study by far. It was the um, core part of an IOM um, report that came out a few years later. They looked at children who had received slightly higher levels of mercury through their vaccines and slightly lower levels of mercury through their vaccines and concluded there was no different in autism rates. And a guy like Offit takes this data that a little more mercury and a little less mercury leads to no difference in autism rates and says, therefore, vaccines are safe. It's completely absurd. And parents can figure this out pretty quickly. They walk into a doctor's office and six vaccines are given to their kid at once in 10 minutes. There's absolutely no science to tell you that that's either safe or what the negative outcome of that might be. And talking about people who are supposed to be having backed this up, tell us about Dr. Paul Thorson. Well, Paul Thorson was um, an important scientist on a number of the Danish studies. When, when the CDC couldn't make the American data um, tell them the story they really wanted to tell, even the, the 2003 pediatric study that I referred to um, ended up with a neutral outcome, meaning they could neither prove nor disprove that mercury caused um, um, autism in children. They frantically looked for another country that could help them, and Denmark was the one that showed up um, largely because... The public data in Denmark is controlled by an organization that also produces all their vaccines, so there was a for-profit interest in the whole thing. Anyway, Paul Thorson's one of the major authors of these quote-unquote Danish studies, uh, and it turns out he embezzled several million dollars. Uh, they couldn't find the guy, um, so he'd been wildly dishonest in his own right, and somehow that whole story on Thorson has really been buried. Um, it's made a tiny bit of news, but it still hasn't been resolved, and all they know for sure is the guy walked away with millions of dollars of their money and is a key author in all the Danish studies that everybody keeps talking about. And, J.B., you alluded to earlier the fact that, in your own personal opinion, it sounds, seems like Paul Offit is, is coming away with a bunch of money. And have the fruits of his labor really... Um, has his labor resulted in children dying? You know, here's what I would say. He's a vaccine patent holder on a rotavirus vaccine. We looked at 30 first world countries, and exactly three have picked up his vaccine. Uh, And his vaccine has been um, shown to damage children and create this very debilitating bowel disease in a small portion of kids, some of whom have subsequently died. So did his vaccine cause their death? I'll let the FDA figure that out. But I know for certain that there are reports in the various database of uh, Offit's vaccine leading to a debilitating gut disease. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to make another point that um, somehow the press is missing completely, and this is said with great respect to Andy Wakefield. But truth be told, Wakefield's 1998 paper had no bearing on me whatsoever. My son was born, my first son was born in 99. Um, and my son with autism was born in 2002. This notion that Andy's paper set off this worldwide panic is such absurd revisionist history. All you'd have to do is go back to the headlines of the day and see that in the States that was certainly not the case. And I could tell you, when I was getting my son vaccinated in 2002, I'd never heard Andy Wakefield. I'd barely heard anything about the idea that vaccines might cause autism. The worldwide panic is a very recent phenomenon, and there are other people who would deserve great credit for that. Um, but the other side and their desire to sort of kill this story is trying to make it seem like Andy created everything, he's a fraud, so it all must not be true. That couldn't be, that's nowhere near what actually happened or how it all went down. Four or five years ago, this wasn't even talked about in the U.S. media until people like Don Imus and Jenny McCarthy came along. Well put, J.B., what do we know, or more glaringly not know, about the author of the allegations, Brian Deere? 
You know, I, I put up a, an expose on Brian Deere um, yesterday at the Age of Autism website, ageofautism.com, and I really hope that listeners will go there and read for themselves. What, what I've been able to assemble just in the course of, of 36 hours are some very important salient points. The first is that Deere, in his initial um, investigation of Andy back in 0304, was, was assisted by a group whose um, sole purpose in life was to report certain doctors to the General Medical Council of Britain. So he, he, um, he had expert guidance in helping him you know, on his way. The, the second thing, and something that Deere denies over and over again, even though I've seen a document to prove that this allegation is true that I put on the uh, Age of Autism website, is that Deere himself is the complainant with the General Medical Council. The General Medical Council is the um, body in Britain that, that decides whether or not you can practice medicine. Deere wagged the dog. He created this story. No parrot did. The Royal Free Hospital didn't. The Lancet didn't. This is a journalist who filed the complaint that led to the trial, that led to them taking Andy's license away, that led to the retraction of the paper, and that led to the BMJ um, article. But perhaps the most damning thing that I've learned about Brian Deere is that he, he's lying when he says that he's interviewed the parents of the Lancet 12 children. How can you go into such great detail about these children's records and accuse Andy and others of falsifying information, implying the children didn't have bowel disease, implying some of them didn't even have autism, when you've never actually interviewed the parents of the Lancet 12 children? The first night in Anderson Cooper, Anderson Cooper made a clear representation that Brian Deere had, in fact, talked to all these parents. But I've talked to a number of them, and they, they despise Brian Deere. Um, they, they think he's dangerous. They think he's unhinged. They think he's dishonest. Uh, and they wouldn't talk to him ever. Um, the British Medical Journal published all these allegations on these poor parents' children and never spoke to a single one of them. So the notion that due diligence has been done here in any way is simply false. And I, I think CNN in particular, but other media outlets too, it's been reprehensible how little work they've done to validate the claims of a single journalist um, who's clearly heavily, heavily compromised in terms of his own background on this story. Thank you, J.B. And I'd like to continue with the very patient Wendy Fournier, president of the National Autism Association, Wendy, your organization hosts a wonderful educational conference every year attended by so many parents and professionals who have restored health and function to individuals with autism, as well as providing programs throughout the year to protect children and help families. In view of the sustained attacks on Dr. Wakefield, what gives your organization and families the confidence to keep supporting Dr. Wakefield and his science? Well, Terry, our organization um, stands behind Andy Wakefield 100%. We, um, we know that the findings of his original research in the Lancet paper have not um, been questioned. Um, they've actually been replicated by other research, research studies. Um, and really the, the primary focus of that original study was an association between bowel disease and autism. We know, and it's, it's no longer an argument anymore, that this is definitely the case. Kids with autism, many of our kids, do suffer from gastrointestinal disease. This has been recognized um, in many research studies and most notably by a um, consensus report that came out from the American Academy of Pediatrics last January. So the bottom line is Dr. Wakefield was correct in his findings. Um, we have absolutely, um, we, we have absolutely no reason um, to shy away from our full support of Dr. Wakefield. We believe that he is a man of integrity and honesty and someone who is really searching um, for the answers for our children no matter what. And you have a press release on your website, which is www.nationalautismassociation.org, and you mention 
um, that Dr. Wakefield's uh, research is not isolated. It has been replicated. There was a consensus report published a year ago in pediatrics. Wendy, can you please tell our listeners about the U.S. federal vaccine court concessions and payouts? Sure. Well, you know, of course, the big question here, the big debate and controversy um, for the last several years, and especially right now, has been do vaccines cause autism? And um, we know that, in fact, vaccines can and do cause autism. There have been um, many cases in the United States Federal Vaccine Court where families have been awarded compensation for their child's injuries that led to autism. Unfortunately, there's a lot of semantics involved with these court cases, and it really depends on what kind of language you're using when you file your complaint. But um, according to um, a source at the United States Health Resources and Services Administration, they're quoted as saying, we have compensated cases in which children exhibited an encephalopathy or general brain disease. Encephalopathy may be accompanied by a medical progression of an array of symptoms, including autistic behavior, autism, or seizures. And they are referring to 1,322 cases of vaccine injury compensation that have been settled out of court by the United States government in unpublished uh, settlements. So basically what they're admitting in vaccine court is that um, children can develop autism as a result of a vaccine injury, but they will call it um, things like uh, they're displaying autistic-like symptoms or autism-like symptoms. Um, and they won't actually call it autism. So the semantics are really ridiculous. Um, there have been several um, more high-profile cases, including that of Hannah Poling, um, that clearly showed that this child developed autism after a series of vaccines. So we know what happens. Well, Wendy, thank you so much for bringing that to the attention of our listeners, and thank you so much for the National Autism Association giving listeners children hope. And we'll close there to our listeners. All of the fine folks who you just heard will be on hand at the Autism One Generation Rescue 2011 conference in May, where we always honor Dr. Wakefield, an excellent scientist and human being of the highest integrity who helps and respects parents and all the world's children. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymedica, makers of fine digestive enzymes to complement your special diet. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Enzymedica would like to thank you for listening to Autism One, a conversation of hope. To contact Terry or get more information, visit autismone.org. Tune in next Tuesday for another hour of education and conversation on Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga.